Welcome back to Disputes Digest for the week of March 28th, 2022. I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the international dispute resolution field. And if you haven't already, take a moment to share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you've got feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And you already know the drill. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. But before we cover our first story for the day, we have two announcements that you won't want to miss. I want to give a huge shout out to those of you that were able to attend the ABA International Arbitration Skills Masterclass. We had a big turnout and it was a huge success. And I'm so glad to see so much of the audience had so many TOT fans in attendance. Thank you for showing up. I really appreciate it. Second, as you may have seen on the socials, we are currently recruiting reporters and researchers to join us here on the show. We are looking to build a new function for the show, and we want to add folks to our team. So if you like the show, if you like international business and disputes, send me your CV and a short note on why you'd like to work on the show. We're receiving applications until April 13th, and you can send them to us at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into it. Let's start this week in Paris as the Paris Court of Appeals upheld arbitral awards signed on separate pages during the COVID-19 lockdown. The dispute involves a company named Borelex, who is a French subsidiary of a Canadian company specializing in the construction and operation of solar and wind farms. Innovent is a company incorporated under French law specializing in the construction of wind turbines. Way back in June 2012, Borelex and Innovent entered into an agreement for the study and development of six wind turbine projects hosted by Innovent and for their priority acquisition by Borelex. Notably, the parties had two separate agreements, one as a master framework agreement and the other for securities repurchases with the former requiring resolution in local courts and the latter requiring ICC arbitration. Following the issuance of a final award by the ICC Tribunal issued in early 2020, during the early days of the pandemic, the Tribunal was unable to meet in person to sign the $3.8 million award and instead, as they had done for the entirety of the proceedings, sent digital copies of their signatures on separate pages to the president of the arbitral tribunal who would then send a complete set of signatures to the ICC or the relevant parties. Months later, the unsuccessful party Borelex lodged an application to set aside the award before the Paris Court of Appeals on the following grounds, that, quote, the award failed to state the reasons upon which it was based, the date on which it was made, the names or signatures of the arbitrators having made the award, or where the award was not made by the majority decision, end quote, based on Article 1492.6 of the French Code of Civil Procedure. Borlex sought that the award be null and void and that the effect of the signatures was not the award, but additional and extraneous separate documents. Borlex also submitted various other technical arguments regarding the date and the ability to regularize the award. The Paris Court of Appeals was not persuaded by this line of argument, however, stating that the date of the award was obviously the date that the final arbitrators signed said award and that the lack of simultaneous or same-page execution was not grounds to set aside the award, nor that the arbitrators had signed, quote, three different awards, as was suggested by Borlex. This ruling from the French court clarifies a position that was perhaps obvious, that the time and place of the signature is not likely a basis for annulling an award so long as they comply with the broader framework required under French law. 
Then let's stick with the topic of challenging awards. This time we're in Singapore, where a Singaporean court has declined to set aside an award on public policy grounds. Indeed, the Singapore International Commercial Court refused a Singapore seated arbitral award, which was administered under the auspices of the ICC, for being contrary to Singapore's public policy. The decision relates to a case called CHY v. CIA and affirms the pro-arbitration and minimal intervention stance of the Singaporean courts and is a reminder of the high thresholds to meet to justify such intervention in setting arbitral awards in Singapore and puts an exclamation point on the notion that Singaporean courts will not lightly review an arbitral tribunal's finding of fact unless there are particular factors such as fraud. This approach combined with the position that the tribunal's findings on foreign law are treated as findings of fact rather than findings of law signals the difficulty challengers will have in seeking to set aside arbitral awards in Singapore on the basis that an award is contrary to Singapore's public policy as it contravenes foreign law. This may be a significant consideration for parties who wish to resolve disputes by way of arbitration seated in Singapore but choosing the governing law of the underlying agreement. Finally, the decision highlights an area of uncertainty in the law, which is whether or not findings of law can be reopened by the court at all, or if on the other hand, the court can only do so in certain limited circumstances, which is a matter which could be benefited by clarification from the Court of Appeals. We'll include a link describing the underlying case in more detail in the show notes. Speaking of international courts, let's turn our attention to Hong Kong, where the British government has announced the withdrawal of its judges from the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal over opposition to China's national security law. A representative of the government stated that, quote, the situation has reached a tipping point where it no longer is tenable for British judges to sit on Hong Kong's leading court and would risk legitimizing oppression. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss went on to say, we have seen a systemic erosion of liberty and democracy in Hong Kong, and that the authorities have cracked down on freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and free association. Since the security law was imposed in, back in 2020, the UK Supreme Court has two judges currently sitting on the Hong Kong court in two of 12 overseas non-permanent positions, and they both have resigned. Under Hong Kong law, senior judges from common law jurisdictions are able to sit as non-permanent members of the Court of Final Appeal. There are currently 12 such judges, eight of which are British. Part of this decision has been the critical pressure related to the presence of British judges with activists arguing that their presence appeared to endorse or stand complicit with the new procedures in Hong Kong. In contrast, Canada's Beverly McLaughlin rejects the criticism, stating that she would remain on the court despite the UK judge's withdrawal. Another foreign judge, Robert French of Australia, also indicated that he planned to remain on the bench. Notably, neither of these judges has been called on to hear national security cases pursuant to the new Hong Kong law. Then, let's zoom out and take a look at a practice area review of dispute resolution in the mergers and acquisition space. In a study conducted by CMS Europe, the investigation suggests that organizations in the space are more frequently choosing arbitration to resolve disputes related to M&A transactions. Some of the reasons for this include the desire to avoid court cases in jurisdictions where proceedings are often time-consuming and the outcomes sometimes unpredictable, as well as the desire to prevent a public process. Large international and listed companies prefer the proceedings to stay out of the public eye and to be dealt with in relative privacy. 
A factor that's considered one of the strongest driving forces for choosing arbitration is the need for an award that is enforceable in multiple jurisdictions. The perceived downsides of arbitration are relatively high costs and concerns that the potential efficiencies are not actually achieved in practice. However, considering the continued popularity of arbitration clauses and M&A deals, these drawbacks apparently do not outweigh the benefits to these users. Indeed, despite a 1% decrease in deals with arbitration clauses in 2021, over the past decade, they have steadily ticked upwards, seeing an 8% increase in the last five years alone. We'll include a link in the show notes that provides the rest of CMS's data, but it is an important note to consider for those both in the M&A space and the dispute resolution field more generally. Then let's head to the United States, where the U.S. Supreme Court heard two hours of oral argument a couple of weeks ago in the case of ZF Automotive U.S. versus LuxShare and Alex Partners, LLP Fund v. Fund for Protection of Investor Rights in foreign states. Say that three times fast. The issue before the court was whether international arbitrations, including private commercial arbitration and investor state arbitration, qualify as foreign or international tribunals under 28 U.S.C. Section 1782. The federal statute enabling U.S. federal district courts to order discovery assistance for litigants before such tribunals. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second, Fifth, and Seventh Circuits have held that private commercial arbitration does not qualify for discovery assistance under Section 1782, while the Fourth and Sixth Circuits have extended the statute to private arbitration. But the Court of Appeals agrees the investment treaty arbitrations are eligible for Section 1782 discovery. So the Supreme Court's decision to review ALIC's partners came somewhat as a surprise. Section 1782 does not define the phrase foreign or international tribunal, and in their briefing, the petitioners argued that the phrase refers to tribunals created by foreign governments that exercise governmental authority. Thus, private commercial and investor state arbitrations do not fit that definition, so petitioners say they may not obtain discovery under Section 1782. On the other hand, respondents urge the court to read the text more broadly to encompass private arbitrations. The Biden administration, which submitted an amicus brief and argued in support of CF Automotive and ALIC's partners, and urged the court to adopt a bright line rule excluding any kind of arbitrations from Section 1782 discovery. During the oral arguments, the justices highlighted the differences between the two types of arbitration at issue, i.e. private commercial arbitration and the treaty-based investor state arbitrations, but the majority of the arguments focused on the statutory text with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan suggesting skepticism that the term foreign tribunal naturally requiring government affiliation. Similar to that note, Justice Sotomayor queried whether an arbitral provision selecting an international body like the World Trade Organization would qualify as a governmental tribunal whereby states submit it to its jurisdiction, to which ALIC's partners conceded would likely satisfy that definition. Obviously, there are a number of topics that were raised during the oral hearings, and we'll include a link to a fuller summary in the show notes. But what do you think? Which way is SCOTUS likely to go? And then for our final story of the day, we pick up a story that we covered some weeks ago as the Dubai International Arbitration Center and the London Court of International Arbitration released joint press releases announcing that the two bodies have agreed on a mechanism for the orderly managing of funds paid by parties into bank accounts previously held on behalf of DIFC LCIA and now owned by DIAC pursuant to which the DIAC shall transfer such casework-related payments to the LCIA's accounts to be dispersed to the respective beneficiaries by the LCIA directly. 
Further, all arbitrations, mediations, and other alternative dispute resolution proceedings referring to the respective rules of the DIFC-LCIA, including the ad hoc proceedings where the DIFC-LCIA is requested to act as appointing authority or administrator commented on or after March 21st, 2022. It sounds like despite the surprise and seemingly terse conversations, there has been at least an outwardly agreement on how to proceed with managing disputes in the reason and importantly, not leaving the users and the disputes in a procedural paradox. We'll include a link in the show notes. That's it for Disputes Digest. We should mention two final notes. Again, don't forget to submit your applications to talesofthetribunal at gmail.com if you're interested in working with the show. And secondly, it's been long awaited. It's been a long winter, a great start to 2022, but we are excited to announce that season four of Tales of the Tribunal will be back in exactly one month, the start of May, after the this season is over, just in time for spring and all throughout your summer with great interviews and conversations from around the world of international law and dispute resolution. So thanks for listening as always, and we'll see you next week. This has been Disputes Digest by Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.